Hey everyone, this is Chad Arms, pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about the church in Acts. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to ask you to do us a favor. If you have benefited from listening to these sermons, if you found value in listening to this podcast, then it would be awesome if you would consider leaving us a rating and or review. If you'll do that, it will help our sermons be heard by more people, and we think that that is super important. Like I said, if you find these sermons to be important for you, help somebody else hear them by leaving us a rating or review. Hey, again, thanks for taking some time to listen to this sermon. I hope that it will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm Chad, pastor of this church, and let me just give you full disclosure. I'm excited to preach this series of sermons because uh, it's the it's the topic I like the most. Uh, I, I want you all to have joy. We just finished a series about joy, but I, I don't really get excited to talk about it. What I get excited to talk about is church, and so... I'm super happy you're here. I'm super excited that we get to spend uh, the next handful of weeks talking about this thing called church. And uh, there's a couple of reasons. I think one is just God's kind of wired me to love uh, the church and to love to talk about the church. But really, honestly, like uh, one of the biggest reasons I am who I am today the good parts anyway, is because because of church, because of this thing that we call church. I have a great loving family and that's a part of it, but without church, I don't know who I'd be. And I can tell you that if you go back enough steps in my family's line, like without church, somebody wouldn't have become a Christian that, that passed that on down to me and I wouldn't have the hope and the joy and the love and the forgiveness and all the things that that are so good about being a Christian. And along with that, I'm a pastor, and I'm, I'm not that intelligent of a pastor. And so one of the things that has just driven my ministry is saying like, well, if we just do this thing, this thing called church, our church, if we just do it like God wants us to do it, then you know, no matter what happens, I guess we gave it a good shot, right? And, and, and so as a church, I think I've, I've led us to, be a church that is constantly asking, what is it that God has commanded that we do? What is it that God wants us to do? What is it that, that God has for us? And uh, as a church, what we don't ask is, what's cool right now? We don't ask, like, what's the big church down the road doing? Uh, we really don't ask, like, what's everybody going to like in our church? Like, can we get the highest percentage of people to like what we're doing? These are not questions we ask. We are constantly saying, like, what does God want us to do? And, and the biggest part of that is what the Bible says. And I try to, every single year about this time, come back to looking at the Bible, different sections of the Bible, and asking the question, like, what does God want us to do? What should we be doing based on what the Word of God says? And I, and I think if you are a part of our church, if you, you benefit from our church, if there's things about our church that you like, then, then almost all of it is because of God, but so much of it is because, because every year we're looking and saying, okay, we need to go in the right direction. Are we aligning ourselves with what God's word has said? Are we, are we doing the right things? Are we doing the right things? That's the question. And today we begin this New series on, on church, and we're going to look in the book of Acts, something that uh, if you know the Bible, if you understand you know, what the Bible says about church at all, you'd think we would have talked a lot about Acts, but, but we've never done this before because we've really focused on the commands of church in this church. But, but today we start this study of this book called Acts, and in Acts what we really see is a story of the Holy Spirit's movement after Jesus has left earth, and we see the story of the earliest church, like the very beginning of all of this. I mean, there's some 300,000 churches around America, and, and we see the beginning of it in this story called the book of Acts. And as we do, here's what you need to know. I could do 
a perfect job. I won't ever, but I could do a perfect job of setting a direction for this church at being godly, at following the heart of God, at doing what God wants to do. But none of it matters unless you who are a part of our church embrace it and say, yeah, we're going to make our effort to be a church that, that does what God wants us to do. You see, like, I could go in my room and study the book of Acts and say, okay, I got it. I know what it's supposed to do in our church and we could, and I could just learn all that stuff. But it doesn't, as a church, it doesn't matter if I know what we're supposed to look like. What matters is if you care. Like I want to do this thing called church in a way that, that God wants us to do it. I'm a believer that when we do church the way that God's called us to do it, Church is something, like Brandon just led you to pray about, church is something that people are really drawn to. Even if they, they don't believe in the Christian stuff, like they like this, this organization, this thing, because of the love and the joy and, and all the benefits of church. But, but so many, and, and this is interesting to me, so many of you who are a part of our church are people who were uh, slightly disenfranchised by what you've experienced in churches in the past. You, you never came to a place like where you hated church or you just didn't want to be a part of church anymore, but you, you, you've gone to other churches, and, and I love the churches in Wilsonville, so this is in no way a shot at the other churches in Wilsonville, uh, but you, you've gone to other churches and you've just sensed like something is lacking and I think that what's lacking in many churches and why you've chosen ours is in large part these, these pretty clear things that are painted for us in scripture, commanded of us, uh, but also things that we'll see in the book of Acts were just natural or supernatural, I guess, uh, to the early churches the Holy Spirit led them. And my hope is, this is always my hope, that we will just keep getting better and better and better as a church. That doesn't mean bigger and bigger and bigger. That doesn't mean that we're cooler and cooler and cooler. It means that we're doing things more and more and more in a way that experiences and expresses the glory of God to say it in the terms that we so frequently do. And so as we open this, like this is just the, the upfront challenge. Like this isn't, this isn't a series just so you go, oh, that's neat that they did it that way. The goal of this is that we, our church becomes a better church. That's why we do this almost every single year because we wanna be a better church and sometimes we need reminders of what that looks like and, and, and where we need to go in order to be a better church. But, but it's always, I always just want, I wanna be the best church Ever. Like that's what I'm aiming for. Not to compete with the churches down the road, but just to be the best church ever. And it doesn't happen unless you, not me, because I'm not a church by myself. That would never work. It wouldn't be very fun, I can tell you that. We say, okay, God, I hear what you're saying, and I'm gonna do my best to live it out. And this first this first sermon in this series, as we look at this passage, man. It's so, it really is, it's so foreign to the modern American church. Like just this passage of scripture, when you look at it, it's like the problem. Like it's, it's not the problem. What's not happening based on this scripture is, is like the problem in the American kind of church culture today because we don't see any uh, of this. But before we get there, let me, let me just back up, talk about the book of Acts really quickly. Acts is a, a, a letter written by a doctor slash Christian missionary slash Christian historian, one of the greatest historians ever to live, a guy named Luke. And he writes this letter as a follow-up letter to the Gospel of Luke, which he wrote for a man named Theophilus, who was a Roman guy, saying, hey, Tell me about Jesus. Like, is all this stuff true? Is this real? Like, should I really give my life to Jesus? Because I've heard a lot about him. People are claiming that I should, but I need some, I need some good hard facts. If you're a person who, who you know, really just wants like, like the details and wants to know, like, is this whole Jesus thing like trustworthy? The Gospel of Luke is a great place to start. He kind of cuts the fluff. He has 
Uh, he has witnesses like and resources and other information. He writes a pretty good paper that would probably be accepted by most professors as, as a good document, right? And, and then he follows it up. He's like, okay, Jesus, Jesus died. Jesus rose again. Jesus went back into heaven. Let me write this follow-up letter for you. And that's the book of Acts. It carries on the story. And the book of Acts is kind of centered around this. Jesus came to earth. Luke writes that. There's a great Christmas story that you've probably read at some point in your life at the very beginning of Luke's gospel that he wrote for Theophilus. Like, hey, there was angels and Jesus was born and people celebrated it and it was crazy. And then Jesus lives this perfect, impactful, wonderful, incredible life. And at the end of that life, he is unjustly murdered at the hands of both the Jews and the Romans. And after three days, he rises again. He hangs out with disciples, with people. People see Jesus resurrected. And then Jesus ascends into heaven. Says goodbye to his disciples. Says, hey, you need to tell everybody about me. Help them to live for me. Help them to follow me. All that stuff. And this is really where we pick up in Acts. Acts 1, he talks about that same story. Jesus ascended into heaven, said, tell people about me. But wait, wait until the Holy Spirit comes for the gift the Father will send you. And, and then the, the people that are Christians, not very many of them, just this handful of people, they're in prayer and all of a sudden, and you might know this story, this crazy thing happens, like there's tongues of fire and they start speaking in languages that are not their own, like other languages. Like if I started preaching in Spanish all of a sudden, that would be pretty miraculous, right? And then other Jewish people who were in town for a festival called Shavuot, which is a festival that the Jewish people still celebrate, where they celebrate the harvest and they celebrate the giving of the law, primarily the Ten Commandments, and they're celebrating that, and so they're in town and in Jerusalem, and they hear people speaking their languages from the places that they're from, and they're like, what's going on here? This is crazy, and then this guy named Peter, who was one of Jesus' closest friends and followers, he stands up, he preaches a sermon, and then we read in Acts 2.41, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day, 3,000 people convert to Christianity, choose to follow Jesus, choose to believe in his resurrection, choose to give their lives to him, and it begins this thing called the church. This is the day that we celebrate as Pentecost, which I'm not sure if you're aware of that, but and this is intentional, this is why we're talking about this today. Today is Pentecost. Today is the day where we celebrate the church's birthday, and Corey and Jared's actually. Uh, but today is the day, sorry to trump you guys, but like uh, the church wins. Uh, and today is the day that we celebrate the church's birthday, the beginning of this thing called church and it's really interesting because consider this right like the church goes from 120 people 120 people devoted to Jesus praying waiting for the Holy Spirit to about 3,120 people just like that leads to this question right how do you handle that what do you do organizationally I mean if you're thinking with my hat on you're like how in the world right like what does that even look like and in acts 2 42 through 47 luke gives us this summary statement about what this first church of 3,120 people did what it looked like it's really important before we read it that you kind of understand summary statements in this book called Acts because Luke has several of them as he moves through the gospel of Acts. He'll tell a bunch of stories about the early church and then he'll just drop in a summary statement to give you kind of the overarching idea of what's happening in the church. And there's, there's several things that's in, that are very important about them. First is that they act as kind of conclusions and introductions. And so Luke uses them as a bridge and a separator between these kind of Christian stories of the early Christian church. Like he's telling a story, says, well, let's wrap that section of church history up. Let's move on to the next. And he'll drop a summary statement right in the middle of them. But the summary statements all have kind of the same idea, the same point. And the point is this, through it all, 
through it all, all these stories of good and bad, awesome and ugly, like so many different things happen in that first early church. But through it all, God, through his Holy Spirit, is triumphant. There's triumph. The church is experiencing triumph. One author author talks about the triumph of, of these passages and says, the irresistible progress of the word of God Notice this, I want you to pay close attention to this because of what we all want in the church. The gospel is accepted by more and more people and the quality of Christian life is maintained and developed in depth and intensity. Isn't that cool? Isn't that, I mean, kind of why you're here, right? Like that's why we do this thing because we want more and more people to accept the gospel as true And you're probably here even more because you want to maintain your relationship with God and you want it to grow and develop. And in Luke's summary statements, the overall point is story, 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 bad, good, terrible, ugly, awesome. But through it all, in the midst of all that, God is triumphant in adding more people to the Christian faith and helping those Christians develop their relationship with God in depth and intensity. And so I think like as we approach this summary statement, we want what Luke is saying. We want that. We want triumph in our churches. Luke's putting the best foot forward of the church and saying this is what's happening. God is alive and active and working and doing incredible things despite things, because of things and all of it. We want it, but I think if you're going to pay, if you pay attention, I'm about to read verses 42 through 47. And if you actually pay attention, we want the triumph. But we don't want to do what it takes to have it. And so as you listen to this, like, I really want you to think, Am I in, right? Like, I mean, I want the triumph, but am I willing to do that? And maybe you'll say no at first, and then I'll try to talk you into the importance, but hopefully you'll just say yes from the beginning, and you don't have to listen to the rest of my sermon. And so here it goes. (laughs) Acts 2, 42 through 47. This is what a church that goes from 120 to 3,120 that what they did. They, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer, Everyone was filled with awe at the many signs and wonders performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So there's two things. There, I know it sounded like a lot, but there's two things that kind of drives this passage of Scripture. And the first one is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The second one is that they had fellowship, a word we'll talk about in a second. But everything that follows is really a picture of what it meant to have fellowship. So he says there's two things that they were devoted to that were part of the triumph, that were driving this first church, and they are the apostles' teaching and fellowship. I'm going to spend a lot of time on that fellowship word today because I think the American church is is pretty good about caring about what the apostles taught. There's a sermon in almost every church around America this morning. Some take seriously the Bible, some don't, but most of them at least center their message around the apostles' teaching. But let's talk about that for one second. The apostles' teaching was probably connected to the teachings of Jesus. Consider a church where there was no Bible, right? And so these people are totally reliant upon the guys who hung out with Jesus to say okay I mean think about this I've decided to follow Jesus what do I do and here's these disciples poor guys like oh man what did he say okay let me give you the facts and and thankfully Jewish people even to this day uh, are not like us in, in that they have 
have this long heritage of oral tradition. And so they are still, I think, when I, when I talk to my Jewish friends, they do an incredible job of telling stories. They're, they're great storytellers. And, and I think that, I think we can see it because you go back to the beginning, right? When Adam and Eve were created and, and God is passing down his, his truth through oral tradition and it just trickles all the way up to here. So these Jewish men who are tasked with now saying, what does it look like to follow Jesus? I think are just more equipped than I would be to say, let me tell you what Jesus talked about. Let me tell you what Jesus said. Let me tell you what he said it would take to follow him. And that's exactly what's happening in this first church is that they're saying, hey, there's these people who hung out with Jesus on a daily basis. They knew what Jesus said. They listened to him teach. They saw his miracles. Let's find out from them what it means to follow Jesus. Now, look, I said there's sermons and all that, but I think one of the things that we don't take seriously is uh, kind of modern churches, modern American churches specifically, is that we don't take seriously looking at the word of God when these apostles started to write down the things that Jesus talked about or they, they as the Holy Spirit led, they, they talked to other people who wrote down these things that Jesus said. And, and we like our sermons, but but we don't really take seriously saying, we, we actually have it written down, right? Like, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And then we can open up the Bible and start to read and say, oh, okay, that's what it means to follow Jesus. And if I see us falling short at all, it's not in the corporate setting, it's in the individual setting where we should just be people of the Bible. And I said just a couple of weeks ago, like, I'm not a guy that, that ever wants to say, read your Bible more, but I am a guy who wants to compel you to read the Bible more by talking about how important it is. And when we look at what the early church did, it was so natural for them to say, okay, I'm a follower of Jesus. What does that mean? I mean, I didn't even know Jesus. I kind of heard that he was cool and like he healed people. And, and now I've been compelled by the Holy Spirit and Peter's sermon to give my life to Jesus, but I don't even know what that looks like. Well, I'll go talk to the guys that do. And you, I mean, you're blessed because, I mean, every one of us almost, maybe not some of you older people, but almost every one of us has a little device that we keep in our pocket all the time that, that has the Bible on it. And we could just pull it out and be like, what does it mean to live for Jesus in this situation? That's pretty incredible. And I mean, even, I mean, think about this, consider this. You can search a single word on your little device and you can see all the Bible verses about what, what these people have said. Hey, well, if Jesus was here, here's what he'd tell you to do about that. And how seriously do we take that gift? I don't think we do. And so, if we're going to be a great church, we have to be serious about being people of the Bible, of the apostles' teachings. And I hope that we will be that, but I want to dive more fully into this word fellowship because, and I think I just said this of, uh, at the beginning of the Joy series, and I didn't mean to talk about it twice, but it's come up twice in these passages this is a Greek word that translates uh, koinonia, or it's, a, it's the English word fellowship that translates the Greek word koinonia, and I've said this many times and I'll keep saying it, but it's one of the most misused Christian words because what we mean when we say fellowship most often is hanging out. It just happens to be with Christian people and we want to make it sound more spiritual. We use fellowship as like, hey, do you want to go to the blazer game with me and we can have some fellowship? It's like, that's not fellowship. That is not at all what the Bible means when we, when we talk about fellowship. The word means more along the lines of sharing in something. It's a, it's a word that means active partaking or sharing or participation. What it means is to participate in another person's life, uh, specifically in their spiritual life. Koinonia, fellowship, at its very heart, is us saying, I will partake, I will participate, I will share in the things that are going on in you spiritually, in your walk with Christ, in your journey with Jesus, in your, in your efforts to live for God. I will be a part of it. The reason I preached on this a handful of weeks ago is because in Philippians 1.5, Paul's talking about where his joy comes from and he, he says, because of your partnership in the gospel, 
from the first day until now, that word partnership is the same word for fellowship. It's partnering together in spiritual things. And, and, and here's what's so fascinating about it is, is we kind of like the idea, but we kind of hate it, right? It's like, a, for me as an American who it's kind of like pull myself up by my bootstraps kind of guy, like, like I, I, I want us to kind of participate in each other's spiritual lives, but I don't really want you to get too involved with what's going on in my soul. And here Luke pauses to say, here's the best thing the early church did. Here's what was so triumphant about it. They participated in one another's spiritual lives. And most of what follows, as I mentioned, is just an explanation of what that means. And this is where it gets a little still a little less likable for those of us who are Americans and frankly I think um, where it becomes a, a huge contrast to what I see going on in the American church today let's face it what does is, what is the average normal American church look like it looks like people showing up singing the same songs listening to the same sermon and going home but no participation beyond that in each other's spiritual lives and I think Luke would absolutely hate that idea and so we, it's great, yeah, let's participate, but, but here's, here's what comes next. He says in the midst of that, one of the things they did to participate or to share in each other's spiritual lives is they broke bread together. And this probably and most likely, that's the same, that's a synonym, uh, probably and most likely contains an idea of the Lord's Supper, that they took communion together. But it's even more than that. It's that they, in Acts 2, 46 and 47, at the end, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. They shared meals together. And those meals were centered around the death of Jesus, what Jesus had done for them. They weren't just showing up and hanging out and eating together, but they were eating together. And they were eating together because they understood what an incredible sacrifice Jesus had made for them. And it's so interesting, this idea of of eating together being important to participating in our spiritual lives together. Because it speaks to so much about Christianity like, like this. Jesus had meals with people. That's like a very normal part of his ministry. Like an average day, Jesus is eating with different people. And so you could imagine as they took seriously the apostles' teachings, you're like, hey, what was Jesus like? What did he do? Like, well, he would teach some sermons and then we'd go to somebody's house and have dinner. Like, oh, we should do that too. We should do that too. And so Jesus ate with people, and if we're gonna be like Jesus, we're gonna be followers of Jesus, then we should be eating with people. And then there's this other thing. After Jesus rose from the dead, he had meals with people. And a lot of people, theologians, people that study the Bible, they they agree that this points to the eschatological banquet, which means nothing to a lot of you, but this is the idea that, that our heavenly experience, when Jesus comes back and he takes us up, it will be like, like a giant feast. Like we think of when Jesus coming back, and I know I say this a lot, but it's like maybe boring and we go to heaven and we float on clouds and we play the harps, which is pretty cool. But when Jesus described what it would be like to be in heaven, he described it in terms of a giant meal. I love that, especially if it's Mexican food. Like that's an incredible idea. If I could just eat chips and salsa forever without ever getting full, you know what I mean? Like that's heavenly to me. That's something I can sink my teeth into. Ah, that was a good one, not even written down. And so Jesus has these post-resurrection meals that point to our heavenly experience. And when we eat together, we point to what eternity will be like, a bunch of people sharing meals together, eating good food. And, 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 And even more, I love this, I love this. Having meals together pointed to this thing that was so important to the early church and that is that they, because they were all Christians, they had become part of the same spiritual family. 
The early church, people actually thought that they were incestuous, that they were, you know, having relations with their brothers and sisters because their normal term for each other was brother and sister. So husband and wife were calling each other brother and sister because they saw themselves first in their relationship with God. And people were like, that's a little weird, you know? Like, what's going on there? This is, this is a real part of Christian history. And it's because they saw themselves as family, And so sharing a meal with family, that's normal, right? Like, it would not make sense if we didn't share meals together. The Greco-Roman culture in which the early church sprung out of gives us a a greater background because, because they believed, and this is a quote, a host who shared a meal with guests was thought to have formed a bond of relationship that never should be taken lightly. And so the host enters in, does something really just magnificent in Greco-Roman culture by, by inviting people into their home. And it's a bond that, that shouldn't be broken or taken lightly. And then, and then there's this other thing about Greco-Roman culture is that, that they would only share meals with people that they were unified with, which in large part for Roman people meant that they were kind of on the same social class as them. Like we, we can hang out, you know, like think of high school, right? And, and what that looked like if you sat at somebody's lunch table, is that giving you a good picture? Like, like to share a meal says, hey, we're at the same social level. We're cool here. And now you can imagine, just picture this early church. They're surrounded by people who get together and have their banquets and all of those things. But it's all the same social class and all of a sudden Christianity springs up and you got rich guy and poor guy and cool guy and not cool guy and ugly guy and good looking guy and famous guy and not famous guy, successful guy and not so successful guy coming together in houses and sharing meals together. What does that say to the world around them? We're unified and it's not a unity based on our social class but on our love for something greater than us, Jesus. Isn't that awesome? I mean, the early church would have been noticed for this. Like, why is he going to that person's house for dinner? This is weird. We just don't have enough of that anymore. And so we see as, as kind of the, the backdrop of these meals, like, so much, right? Like when we eat together and it's driven by our relationship with Jesus, when it's centered around the fact that Jesus died on a cross to save us from our sins, we speak incredible truths to ourselves and to the world around us. As they did it, they praised God, by the way. And that probably means that they sang a psalm together or some new Christian song. And I just love that picture. But that is so far from our cultural norm today, is it not getting together, sharing meals together? We, we, don't, we don't like it anymore. There's this stand-up comedian. I don't even know who he is, honestly. I only know about two of his stand-up comedy routines, and one is about Chipotle, but he says Chipotle wrong the whole time is in the restaurant, so I couldn't take it seriously. Um, and then the other one is, is, and maybe you've seen this pop up on your Facebook feed if you're on Facebook, It's about the way we thought of people stopping in our houses 30 years ago versus now. And I'm not going to try to do the stand-up routine for you, but it's, it's very funny. And he describes the situation that would be so true of me. He says, like, when the doorbell rang 30 years ago, everybody would just run to the door to see who was there, right? Like, can you think back to the 80s or before? Like, who's here? Who's coming over? And we had a word. He says this. We had a word. The word was company. And we were excited for when company came over and our families had special dishes or special food that you didn't eat until you had company. And we'd sit around. Do you remember these days? Some of you can't. You two can't. Like, do you remember these days when, we, when we'd come over and, and people would come over and we'd be excited and we'd sit around and we'd talk and we'd have coffee and people would hang out and we'd stay and it would be fun now and this uh, this is true of me and I'm so sad to say it think about when your doorbell rings now the way he describes it is that your mom is like get in your army crawl stay down do not say a word I think they saw movement um and and we're kind of like that like Brent do you think they heard us that's how I am to my wife like do you think they heard us Now, if I see you, it's not that way. But you know, if you just, doorbell rings and you don't know, it's like, they're here, who is it? I totally have gone up to the blinds and been like, oh, who's outside, you know? That's what happens now. It's so countercultural for us. 
to want to share our homes and our food and our lives with other people. But if we're going to be a great church, we're going to have to do that. Now this, again, first of all, just an advertisement. We have monthly church meals and we have a good portion of our people going to them, but we don't have everybody who's a part of this church going to them. And that needs to change. It's a lot of the same people going over and over and over again. I'm tired of them. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) If you want to help this church move forward, then you have to be a person who comes to these meals, frankly. And, and, We should just be people who have others over to our house for meals when it's not a church-organized thing. Now, look, look, look. I'm a little bit preaching to the choir if you've been at our church a long time because we've developed a culture where this is far more normal than a lot of American churches today. We have monthly meals. People go to them. We eat together on Sundays a lot. We call them potlucks, right? We are people who are connected and we love each other and I think that's the reason that some people are drawn to this church because there is a participation. But we need it more and more. We need it more and more because did you notice what it said? They were actually meeting together daily. And I'm not going to shoot for that because I think that might be overshooting. Like, hey, we're going to have a service every day. You're probably not going to be there for that, I understand. But, But this should be like, not just like, hey, go to a church meal, creekside.me slash dinner, right? Like, don't just do that. Do that and have people over. Invite people over to come have food or dessert or hang out or whatever and make it all centered around the fact that Jesus has died for both of us, all of us, and he's brought us into a relationship with him. Then they're praying together. Now, this is really uncomfortable in the modern American culture. Like, like it's, I mean, we have, and again, I don't mean this to be an advertisement, but we, so much of what we do is we're just trying to get to the heart of the Bible, and so it just makes sense for me to advertise what we do because it's driven by things like this in Scripture. They prayed together. Like, like we can't participate in each other's spiritual lives unless we pray together. It just won't happen. And for whatever reason, like it's like the most uncomfortable thing in the world in modern American culture. It's like, we're having a great time. The conversation's great. Okay, it's time to pray and everybody goes silent. You've been there. You've experienced it if you've been around church for a long time. Like just say, like even if you're about to have dinner, like, like eat, everybody's laughing, good time. Who wants to pray? Like that. And we just can't be a great church if we're not praying together. Now, this is, again, twofold. This is like, come to our first Friday prayer meeting every single time. It is my dream and my hope that we will outgrow our house, and we're doing that. And, and, and I, think that, I think that if that was bigger than our Sunday morning service, then that would be just fine. Our church would be blessed, and the world would be blessed because of it. I think that what we do, the quality of our church, and the impact of our church is directly related to how many people will show up and pray with us on the first Friday of every month. I completely believe that. But make it a normal thing to pray for people in our church. Like, just just say, like, hey, we're having food together. We're already here. We're hanging out. Let's pray. Just make it a part of the church. If you see somebody sad after a church service, go pray with them. They might be weirded out, that's okay. If they don't want to be weirded out by people praying for them, then they can find another church where nobody will pray for them. It's not that hard. Praying with one another is part of participating in one another's spiritual lives, and it must be done. And then there's this little line. They sold their property to take care of each other's financial needs. Oh my goodness, socialism. Um, So this is what's so difficult uh, about, about this verse in the Bible is that it is almost impossible for us as Americans to separate it from our political viewpoints. But we need to if we're going to read it correctly, right? Because we read this and we're like, wow, the early church was socialistic or communistic and, and I, I cannot be a part of that, you know? Like, or you're like, sweet, I told you, you know? And, and we, look, look, this is not a political idea. This is a church idea. And the problem is that those if you're trying to fight against socialism in our country, then it's really hard for you to separate it and look at a church and say, 
maybe it should feel a little more socialist. But there's a couple things that are really important about this. Number one, number one, notice this. This is not commanded of the people. This is not God saying, hey, sell everything you own, share it with everybody, we'll be a commune. That's not what it's saying here. It's saying that people willingly sacrificed of their own property, their own goods, in order to support people around them. It was part of participating, sharing in one another's spiritual lives. You have a need? I'll sell what I have in order to give it to you and to support you in that need. Now, the other part of this is, is it's actually not a communal idea necessarily. Um, because what you don't see is that everybody showed up at this first church. There's 3,120 people. They all sold everything that they owned. And then they said, okay, well, it's all in one big pot and we'll share it and that's it. This isn't that at all. It's actually people owning their own property and then sharing or selling that property as needs arise. And so it isn't saying like, if you wanna be a good Christian, if you wanna move our church forward, then you, then you can't have personal property. In fact, these people maintained their personal property until they were willing to sacrifice that personal property for the good of somebody else. There's a story about this, these two people, a married couple, Ananias and Sapphira, and, and, and they wanna look like they're, they're doing a great thing for the church, that they're participating. And so they go and they sell this property and then they bring some of the money to the church and say, hey, I brought some money for those in need and it's all the money from the property I sold, but they kept some of it for themselves. And then Peter looks at, at, at um, Ananias and he says, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. I mean, see a couple of points there, don't lie. But also, like, he didn't have to give this money. It was his choice. Like, he could have kept the property. He didn't have to sell it. And so this isn't saying, like, you must always. This is saying the early church was triumphant in large part because they participated in one another's spiritual lives by saying, I have more than I need. How can I help you who have needs? Now look, I know it's really hard, again, to separate it from our political stances, um, but I think that, that part of the problem with that is we just kind of ignore it. We say, well, it's not commanded, and it's not communal, so I just won't do anything like this ever. But first, let me just tell you that uh, I've seen this actually lived out. I, I took a seminary class and where it was communal, actually, and it wasn't nearly as bad as I expected. Uh, I, I took this seminary class called Urban Church something and and the idea was to see how urban ministry was done and and I really liked the class because all we did was take field trips around the San Francisco area and we went to different ministries that were uh, in kind of the heart of San Francisco to see what they were doing went to a, a a big Baptist church that's right in the middle of San Francisco and you can see how there's there's some tension there right between the middle of San Francisco and a Baptist church and we went to Fremont which has the largest uh Afghani uh, population outside of Afghanistan and we saw how a missionary was trying to kind of connect with these Afghani people who were not Christians. And then we went to this, uh, this communal church where these, these people had jobs and they made their own money but they had willingly made a decision to put it all into one pot and they separated that pot out and they... Uh, shared everything that they owned. And we all went, every single person that I was in this class with, went thinking, these people are gonna be weird. They're gonna have chickens in their living room and they're gonna be making eggs. Oh, wait, that's Portland. Um, and I, I, this, they're gonna be crazy and they're gonna like all wear the same clothing and be totally robots. And it was nothing like that. And I came away from that, not saying I should start a commune, but, uh, but, but going... Like, why are we so against this idea of sharing, right? Like, I'm not suggesting we become that. I'm just saying, like, where have we gone so far away from being willing to share that we, that we look down on people who have made a commitment to share everything, right? And it wasn't bad. They were normal. They were cool. There was a, a reason for everything they did. I totally uh, would have 
joined it and felt totally comfortable. It was not a cult. There was no weird, crazy leader that was going to make him drink the Kool-Aid. It was, and, and it still has had this lasting impact on me because it's like, like maybe if we were just a little more like that, right? Because it was kind of beautiful, honestly. It was kind of beautiful. Like they loved Jesus. They were out doing outreach projects as part of their ministry and as a church. They loved each other. They shared an apartment building, which is really hard to afford in San Francisco, so it made some sense. Like, and it was beautiful. And I'm not saying we become that one more time, but I am saying like, maybe we should consider how we can actually share in each other's possessions if it's really a part of sharing in each other's spiritual lives. 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 18 says, Command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and be generous and willing to share. In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Being a Christian doesn't require that we give up all of our possessions, but it does call us to think about how we might share our possessions with those in need. And then they continued to meet together. Uh, That's an important thing. You can't really be a church without coming together. And they did that daily, uh, which is incredible. And again, it points to this idea, not that we need to meet together daily, but that we should be so driven by sharing our spiritual lives together that it would feel normal to be together daily. And all of this points to this giant question. How are we sharing in each other's spiritual lives with one another? Let me say, I feel a little bit like I'm preaching to the choir. I think some of you are incredible. But I'll ask it in a different way. How should you be sharing more in your spiritual life with others? How should you be participating in other people's spiritual lives more and more? And there's two incredible outcomes and they are this. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Everything in common does not mean the communal idea. Again, it it actually refers to unity. And what we see here is that their unity resulted in sharing and that their sharing resulted in unity. Acts 2.47, they enjoyed the favor of all people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. More people are becoming Christians and they were liked by people outside of them because they were looking at this community and saying, how great is that? How much do I wish I could be a part of something that beautiful where they share and they love and they participate and they hang out and they give each other food and they, 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 they are excited when the doorbell rings. I wish I could get something like that. You know how many people don't want to listen to the Christian message because they don't see any difference in the Christian community today? It's the question that Brandon, and we did not plan that at all. I had no idea he was going to say that about his coworker saying what would be good about Christianity and Brandon saying these relationships. Like, we just, people go, there's no difference. Why, why do I need to hear about your Jesus if there's no difference? But if we truly shared, people would be like, hmm, I'll listen. I'll hear about Jesus because I really like what you guys look like. Our world is clamoring for real, deep love connection, right? I mean, this is why social media is so popular and so terrible because people like, they just want to be connected to others. But social media makes you feel like you're kind of connected, but it never really satisfies you, right? And the church is uniquely equipped to answer the problem of connection and love and unity. And all of these people who, man, are so lonely, they end up shooting their classmates, are so lonely that they end up committing suicide. I mean, and we're uniquely equipped to, to, to change that. But we're not sharing at least not most churches. And, and I think it's, it all boils down to Acts 2.43, and I'm, I'm running out of time. I told you I really like talking about this stuff. I get to talk, I'm talking about it from two to five if you want to come and hear more. Um, but, but I really, uh, I'm passionate about this stuff because I see the American church dying in front of me. And I think most people just need to open a Bible and say, let's try to do it like that. Let's get rid of the lights and 
Let's stop worrying about how cool we are. And let's just try to do it like that. Acts 2.43, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And the NIV translates this in a funny way. It sounds like they are in awe at the signs and wonders committed by the apostles, but it actually says they were filled with awe and the, the apostles were doing many signs and wonders. And here's, here's what I'm convinced of. Here's one of the great problems. Here's, here's what stands in the way between us taking the apostles' teachings seriously and us sharing, participating in one another's spiritual lives and, and what we're currently doing. It's this, we're no longer in awe of God and the incredible things that he has done. Like that gospel story that I've already told, that God came out of heaven and walked around on earth, lived perfectly and sinlessly, and then chose to die for you, and then lo and behold, got out of the grave. Like we're just not in awe about that. And so we don't participate and we don't take the apostles' teaching seriously. But this first group of people, they're like, whoa, are you telling me, that's how I picture it, like, are you telling me he came back to life? Are you serious? They're like, yeah, man, we saw it. It's like, wow, wow. And I think if we can just find it in us to return to the wow, then participation in the apostles' teaching will once again be a part of our church but we're just wandering around trying to be wowed by the latest and greatest light show or best sound equipment and it's not that awe inspiring because Hollywood does it better if our church is unified we must share more and if our church shares more we will be more unified if our church is unified we must share more and if our church shares we will be unified more let me pray that that happens Lord I pray that we would be a church I mean, it's like what you've called us to, God. God, you know, you've placed a calling on my life to try to make the American church better and, and I just, I frankly feel like it's such an uphill battle, God, whether I'm talking to people in our denomination who don't ever want to make changes or whether I'm talking to young people who are just think it needs to be cooler and if we just could be more culturally relevant then it would all get better but I just want to see a revival in our country and I think God I believe in my heart of hearts that revival will start with stronger churches and I think that stronger churches will will happen God as we are in awe of the incredible gospel story and Lord, when we start to take seriously your teachings and God, when we start to participate again in each other's spiritual lives, I just can't imagine, <laughs> I can't imagine your 12 disciples thinking that they could do the Christian life alone. I can't imagine them dreading having to show up to worship you together. I can't imagine them not being excited to share meals together and talk about the incredible work that you had done and art were doing, God. And yet here we are today, God, struggling to get people to have dinner together once a month, struggling to compel people to show up on Sunday mornings, thinking it weird when somebody in our church invites somebody else over to have dinner, being scared to pray together. And it's no wonder, God, that the church in America is so weak. I pray that you would change it and I pray that you would start that change right here at Creekside Bible Church. Let us be a church that shares and takes your teaching seriously. I pray these things in your name. Amen.